0: It is, again, a blessing, and it would be fair to say, that as we are able to assemble and to gather on an occasion such as this one, it is a tremendous statement of freedom that we live in a place, in a land, wherein we can do this without any particular fear of interference, any particular fear of harassment on the part of others who might feel very differently. For right now, certainly, we're thankful for this blessing and opportunity, and tonight, for the next few moments, what don't we reflect upon a lesson I've entitled, The Origin Variety of Peoples. Now, the title alone might be a bit on the unusual side, admittedly, but I hope that at least some of that which we consider will be a blessing to us as we reflect upon some claims on occasion made, and otherwise you and I can be refreshed, and not only that, anchored more fully in the treatment of the Word of God. It all begins with these introductory thoughts. It goes without saying that as you give thought to the human family, mankind, existent all around this globe, it's easy to see there are a lot of differences. There are differences in skin color. There are differences in hairstyles. There are differences in even facial textures and presentations. All of this. And yet the obviousness of those differences sometimes leads others to make the assertion that evolution is necessary in order to explain this wide variety and this diversity of appearances. Tonight we're going to ask, is that true or can one fit the appreciation of those distinctions into what the Bible has to say? Now I hope that as we reflect upon that and think somewhat about it, you'll notice that near the bottom of that slide, I'm going to go ahead and give away the answer. I asked the question, so is it possible to use Biblical presentation, the doctrine of creation, and those matters that follow it. And yet explain the variety of appearances and characteristics in light of this. The answer is an overwhelming yes. But let's see if we can do that at least in the brief time we have this evening. And do that with a renewed appreciation for the grandeur of the Word of God. It'll begin with a section I've entitled, In the Beginning... And you might well anticipate that as we reflect upon in the beginning, we go back, of course, to the book of Genesis. And as we do that, we will not only revisit some of the appreciations found there, but we'll make some particular applications of it. Let's begin like this. In the opening chapter of the Bible, we, of course, encounter God's creation of mankind. Let me invite you to note along the word, M-A-N-K-I-N-D, mankind. That will become apparent, and not only that, very useful in a moment, but for right now. Of course, as God created man on that sixth day of God's creative activity, you and I recall that the land-dwelling animals were fashioned earlier that day, but then God, in verses 26 and following, fashioned man. He did so by making man in His own image. That wasn't said about any of the other aspects of His creation. Inasmuch as He fashioned man in His image, you and I will recall that Eve, of course, she too was fashioned as a result of the insufficiency of what God already had in place. It wasn't good that the man should be alone, Genesis 2.18. You might note, though, in that connection, that Genesis 2 verse 7 summarizes much of that like this, "...and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground." and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Now, one of the things about that passage, that verse, that should be of some benefit to us as we shortly come to some others, will be the great aspect of the nature of what it teaches. But at least for right now, note what's next on the slide. So, the human family, the humankind, if you please, started with a man and a woman, two, Adam and Eve. It is true, Adam was the first man. Paul declared that in 1 Corinthians 15, 45. And Eve was said to be the mother of all living. Genesis 3, verse 20. From two, now there are over 7.9 billion people living on the planet. Now, if the trend will continue, and there's certainly an expectation that it shall, at least in the mind of so very many, we shall cross 8 billion In January of next year. So right now well over 7.9 billion people living on the planet. Started from two and now that many. So many things might be asked and I've invited you to notice them again. I suppose some of the most obvious are skin color. There are those that are very dark skinned. Those living in middle to southern Africa for example. There are others that are exceedingly fair-skinned, like those in Northern Europe. There are others that are somewhere in between, like those of India, those of, say, Malaysia and Southeastern Asia. But not only skin color, you could think about hairstyles. There are those that are rather straight-haired, others are noticeably kinky. There are also facial presentations. You and I know the Orientals have an eye shape that's very much different than ours, and it's quite common to that part of the world. There are others that may know. There's a great difference in the particular characteristics of apocrine glands, that which produces, in essence, the odor that goes with the human being. Some peoples don't have much of that; others have a lot. All of these distinctions are fair to note, and they're easy to appreciate. Again, may I say, there are some who are quick to say you need evolution to explain that variety, that diversity, and the presentation of all of it. That is isn't so. You and I are going to use the Word of God as we close that slide by putting into place a term that you sometimes will hear. I do believe we might need to be cautious the way we use it, especially in connection to the way it's defined. I'm talking about the word race. So as you think sometimes about references to the human race, look at the way that's typically defined. The word race is defined as any one of the groups that humans are often divided into, based on physical traits regarded as common among people with shared ancestry. Now that's a wordy definition, a somewhat wordy description. It seems to me the next slide, though, does a far better job at presenting what is far more useful to you and to me. Would you revisit with me again what appears in the opening chapter of Genesis? There you and I well recall and have often given emphasis to this. God said, for instance, among the grasses and the various things presented on day number three that they were to reproduce after their kind. That's the way that God said it. The same wording appeared in verse 5 in regard to the life that was in the oceans, and the life also in the skies. It was to reproduce and to come forth after its kind. But interestingly, the same phraseology occurs on day 6. The land-dwelling creatures were to reproduce and to bring forth after their kind. But remember, the human family, you know, was brought about on day 6, And may I now bring to fruition something I noted earlier. It's entirely interesting then to notice mankind as the human creatures bring forth after our kind. That's the way it's always going to be. Humans can't bring forth animals, and animals cannot bring forth humans. It thus is entirely reasonable to refer to mankind. I might suggest in that light, that biologists, of course, have something to say about this. You'll notice that the way that biologists refer to human beings, we are of the genus and species known as Homo sapiens. I might point out rather quickly that in terms of that biological classification system, that, of course, there often can be a particular genus And then there could be a wide variety of others that fit into that genus. But it isn't so with humans. There's one genus and one species. There's nothing else that shares that set of characteristics. We are it. Now, the biologists, often having made reference to that, at least remind us of the interesting implications. Might I suggest at least this one. As you think about, then, the characteristics of all these differences, we are all of the same kind, regardless of skin color, regardless of those features of the eyes or otherwise, regardless of the hair textures and other matters. We are all, as humans, of the same kind. I say it this way for what you notice at the bottom. Our scientist friends will cast a strong spotlight upon those attributes of of living things that can interbreed and produce offspring which can in fact breed. Human beings do that, regardless of skin color, regardless of these other attributes, we are of one kind. In some ways, that takes us back to the text Brother Wayne read in Acts 17. Did you know what the Apostle Paul declared so beautifully on that day as he preached in Athens? He made declaration as He stood there among the intelligentsia of that ancient Grecian empire. He pointed this out to them. And hath made of one blood all nations of men. One blood of all nations, regardless of skin color, regardless of some of these other distinctions and diversities. And I think we're all quite aware of the fact that we as humans are often very good at noticing the distinctions. And sometimes in history, that has been a very serious thing. But I hope you and I are well in a position to now confess the fact there is but one kind of human beings. That m- immediately, I suppose, begins to ask the question, where then do all the differences come from? Why is there so, such dark-skinned people in some places and much fairer-skinned peoples in others? What about all these other differences that one can easily note? As I studied for this, I, in fact, noticed and found a number of other distinctions, some of which you might find odd. One of them is earwax, oddly enough. We here, peoples like you and I, tend to have, shall we say, earwax that's very adhesive. It's somewhere between a liquid and a solid, but you know, peoples in other parts of the world, their earwax is much more solid much more crumbly than ours. That's a distinction that sometimes can be used to identify the classifications and classes of people. How is it that some have earwax like you and me and others are far different? May I again say you do not need evolution to explain it. You do not need that which is attached to that to cast a spotlight on it. And so why don't we do this? Let's step forward in the history of these matters and go a little over 1,500 years after the creation and come to the time of the flood. Now, you and I remember that in the day and time of the book of Genesis, the lifespans were rather lengthy, as you and I will recall. And I believe we readily describe and appreciate what you notice at the top of that slide. 1,656 years after the creation, we arrive at that time when God appreciated that the human family had become rather evil the thoughts of men's hearts was only evil continually Genesis 6 verse 5 and in that way God made determination to bring a flood of waters upon the planet now Noah had found grace in the eyes of the Lord and God then gave to Noah a system of instruction in essence Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord Genesis 6 verse 8 And that grace that was manifested to him appeared in a set of commandments. You build an ark. And then, of course, he was told, you take aboard that ark two of every kind of the unclean animals and seven of the clean ones. And the text says in Genesis 6.22, Thus did Noah according to all that God commanded him, so did he. He constructed this massive vessel and he took aboard those creatures. That were fitting to that which God commanded. You and I will recall the flood of waters did come, and there was a massive system of drowning that then came forth that wiped out all humankind except those aboard the ark. Now you'll notice aboard the slide that now invites this question. So now you and I can readily conclude that everyone of the peoples now living on the planet, in some way descended from one of the sons of Noah. You might want to think about that. Every person now alive descended through one of those sons. That means that all of these distinctions and characteristic traits, the dark-skinned peoples, the light-skinned peoples, and those anywhere in between, They all came out of the loins of Noah, and in particular, through one of those boys. Noah only had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. All the planet today was populated by virtue of that which came from them. That means all of the distinctions, all of the diversities, all of the appreciations of various peoples, wherever they may be, came about through them. Now, that immediately begins to bring us to this note. Genesis chapter 10 does offer us some help. Could I point you in that chapter to these observations? I've invited you to note carefully this one in verse number 5 of chapter 10 of Genesis. We are carefully told that the isles of the Gentiles came forth of the seed of Japheth. Now, you might be quick to ask, who are the isles of the Gentiles? May I summarize quickly? That would be all peoples that were the fairer-skinned ones. So all the Europeans, typically speaking, and most of us would have come through them, by the way. But that would also include, you see, those peoples like Canadians as well as so many others. The fairer-skinned peoples. But that's just one of the three boys. I've asked you to again notice about Ham, the next one that, we, that at least we shall note, because he appears next in the chapter. In Genesis 10, beginning in verse 6, we learn that the Assyrians and the Canaanites all developed out of the descendants of Ham. But we shall learn more than that in just a moment. But might we go ahead and notice about Shem. The third boy mentioned, you notice that that chapter in verse 21 is quick to remind us that the peoples of the east... Developed from him. So as you think about those dwelling in the east, those in the far east, those in the middle east, all came forth of the loins of Ham. I'm sorry, of Shem. And now, with that, let's close that slide by noting this. One of the features that I find a bit intriguing, you and I note that the names in the ancient era typically, or at least often, had meanings connected with them. Like the name of Jacob, the name of Esau, those names meant something. They had an attribute, a characteristic to which they pointed. May I call to our attention, it would appear that maybe the same thing's true of the names that Noah's sons had. I wonder what Japheth means. And I wonder what Shem and of Ham also they mean. I've taken the liberty of sharing that with you on this next slide. When you give thought to the name Ham, interestingly enough, that name carries with it the thought of that which is hot or that which is dark. I find it a bit intriguing the dark-skinned peoples descended through Ham. Could it have been the case that God, by His providential character, had names selected for these in light of the complexion which they presented? And in so doing, maybe a small hint as to what would be the case concerning the peoples that descended through them. Not only that, look at the name Japheth. That name means fair. Could that be an indication that the peoples descended through him would have the characteristic of the complexion which Japheth presented? It would certainly seem intriguing and also somewhat interesting to note Given the long lifespans of these that appeared, remember, Adam was still alive hundreds and hundreds of years later. You and I today are fairly blessed if we witness our grandchildren, and surely if we're able to see our great-grandchildren. May I say to you that those living then saw your grandchildren to the 13th and 14th generation sometimes... You saw those living in many, many generations after yours, just because of the length of the lifespans. It would seem thus somewhat interesting that could it be that when Noah and his wife gave the name Japheth to him, a name which suggested that which is fair, could it be that this little boy had a complexion that was fairer than his dad, fairer than Noah, and perhaps even quite fairer than many of his grandfather, -grandfather, great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather, because they were all still living. That could even be, of course, tailored all the way back to near Adam. But the same thing might well be true of Ham. Given his name meant darker, could it be that he was darker than Noah was by way of his complexion, and furthermore darker than perhaps grandpa, great-grandpa, and many others as well? Just an interesting possibility. In addition to all of that, as you come to about the midst of that slide, some other thoughts that might well develop based upon it. Could I now at least offer this thought, given the peoples that live in that part of the world and the characteristics of some knowledge of genetics, could it then be fair to say, what if Noah was, say, a rosy brown color? What if Ham were darker in color than that? What if Japheth were fairer or lighter in color than that? That would be easy to imagine. And it would be quite easy to appreciate genetically as well. When you talk about the genetics in connection to those things like that, could I offer one more thought that follows this in the biblical narrative? We've just studied then at least a little bit about the nature of Noah, his sons, and the flood, and their repopulation of the earth. But what happened in the next chapter? Genesis 11. No doubt the thing that you and I know the best about that chapter is the Tower of Babel incident. At the time that chapter began, everybody spoke the same language. Everybody was able to communicate, to easily speak and converse one with the other. But then, God had given a commandment that they were to repopulate the planet and they were to replenish and move abroad. But you and I well recall the people chose not to do this. They chose to congregate. They chose to remain in one place and not go abroad as God had indicated. And as a result, God confounded their language. Now, they were unable to all understand easily one another. And I believe it now be easy to imagine. What if the dark-skinned peoples... Maybe in the sense that they shared a somewhat common language, and given they weren't easily able to communicate with the others, they began to live in a place and they traveled to a place wherein they were somewhat separated. What if the same was true of those fairer skinned peoples? What if, again, they, due to a language issue, now chose to live in a place where they could intercommunicate with themselves? It wouldn't take but a very few generations for that which was now well appreciated to become something rather common because they would interbreed one with the other and these traits would be amplified. And so the fair skin of those peoples would be a prepondering thing. It would become a common thing. And the same of those that were the darker skin. And perhaps some of the other characteristic traits as well. Now, that thought would then lead us to note that maybe in the events of Genesis 11, we have a reappreciation of something that we are now prepared to consider. I've mentioned only slightly a little bit about the genetics of the possibilities here, but why don't we come to the next slide and see if we can develop some of that by bringing the situation down to our day today. As we all know, we are thousands of years removed from the events that we've been discussing so far. These events connected to the flood of Noah's day, and these events connected to the Tower of Babel. But if you now take a look and give consideration to the survey of peoples that live on our planet, those who do studies on this have given us these pieces of information. Every human being falls into basically one of four categories, and the names of these and the percentages of the population of the planet also is also noted. There are those that are Caucasoids, that is to say they're Caucasian. There are those that are mongoloid. There are those that are Negroid. There are those that are Australoid. Now, what's also fascinating, those again who give consideration to this also inform us that in terms of the overall population of the planet, about 55% of all human beings are Caucasian. 33% Mongoloid, 8% Negroid, 4% Australoid. Now as you give thought to at least that last category, there are some who are quick to simply combine it with a Caucasian one, since there are quite a few matters and characteristics that are similar but you'll find others that do maintain the distinction. I've just listed it for elements of completeness. Now we come to this. If there are only these four large-scale categories, would you note next, I've chosen skin color to be an issue of some consideration, since that's the first one that often comes to the mind of many people. So what determines the color of the skin? We all know there are those far, far darker than we. There are others that are even lighter than we are. And there's seemingly a wide mixture, a wide range of considerations, all the considerations in between. Wouldn't it be interesting to note, biologically, the color of appearance is determined by some pigments in the skin. That's it. That's what determines it. What are those pigments? First, there's melanin. Melanin, as you notice on the slide, is this dark brown pigment. And the more melanin that's there, the darker the skin appearance will be. But not only is there melanin, there's also this that has a yellowish or orangeish presentation. It's what I've listed for you as the carotenoid. And finally, there's this one that looks a lot like hemoglobin, actually. It has a reddish tint or a reddish consideration to it. The amount of that which is in the skin and its distribution determines the skin color. That's it. It's nothing any deeper or fanciful than that. And hence, if one can give some thought as to the appearance of this and how it comes about, then you have an appreciation as to the appearance of the person. So at the bottom of the slide, I've asked you to think of it this way. Would you consider for a moment the possibilities, just from the consideration of genetics? You and I know that in the human being we have chromosomes and genes, and we're not going to go into all of that. But I can at least borrow enough of it to share the following with you. We know that there are some traits that are in a category called dominant, and there are others that are in a category called recessive. Dominant genes, recessive genes. Maybe it's fair to say it is the consideration connected to them which you and I could use in the following way. Now, I've tried to be very clear about stating it on the next slide, but I've went ahead on that slide and used a capital letter A and a capital letter B to identify what might be dominant. And I've used a lowercase letter A and a lowercase letter B to identify what then could be perceived as recessive. With that, look at what we might do with it. In regard to skin color, that is to say, the amount of melanin, what if you and I appreciated that Adam and Eve were both, capital A, capital A, capital B, capital B. What if this was dominant in both of them? Then what we can readily say both Adam and Eve would have been very dark-skinned and every one of their children would have been. So notice that simply follows from the nature of the dominancy connected to the expression in the gene structure of Adam and Eve. Now we can go to the other end of that spectrum. What if both Adam and Eve were little a, little a, little b, little b? That would mean that this appearance in melanin was recessive in both of them. That would have meant that both Adam and Eve would have been very, very fair-skinned, and every one of their children would have been. You can begin to see the idea there would have been no variation. Every one of the children would have been fair-skinned, and there would have been no possibility for any variation at all. Now you'll notice, what's the third possibility? What if both Adam and Eve were capital A, little a, capital B, little b? then you suddenly would have had a tremendous variety as they themselves reproduced and produced their array of children. There would have been a variety possible in the characteristics of their skin colors due to the dominancy or recessiveness of the the genes present. And that would easily have allowed one to wonder, could that idea help us understand the variety of skin colors that would have been seen and it could even be appreciated today. Well, on the next slide, I'm going to summarize some of that, then go back to this one. So let's uh, just appreciate, we'll come back to this briefly, but note this. Our friends in biology, they have a system in which they discuss all of this. In fact, students in our schools are required in many instances in biology classes to learn how to produce Punnett squares, how to take trait distributions, and to make predictions about the traits of the offspring. Look at this slide. I've listed along the vertical and along the horizontal. This either capital A or little a, capital B and little b. And what you'll notice is the vertical, for instance, might correspond to Adam. The horizontal might correspond to Eve. And you begin to ask about the offspring that could be produced as a consequence then of of the genetic variety instilled in the parents. And of course, that's what God would have put there. Look at what happens. You'll notice there's a shading that appears throughout that square. The very top left, notice capital A, capital A, capital B, capital B. Melanin here was overwhelmingly dominant from both. That child would have been very dark-skinned. Not only that, look at the bottom right, both A and B, all of that's little. Recessive, very fair skin. Not only that, look at the other possibilities throughout. You have a mixture on occasion of capital A and little a. You'll notice that that would have been a fairer skin, but not as fair as the one at the bottom right. Right? You also notice at the left middle, you had that was, which was darker, but not as dark as the one at the top left. And in the middle, then, you had those that would have been the largest in probability, and they would have been the not completely dark, you see, but not light, rather just that rosy brown color. I say all of that to say this. Let's go back to that previous slide and note these observations. Just by way of counting... If you appreciate the probabilities connected to 16 children, then probabilistically based on the Punnett square, you would have appreciated one out of the 16 very, very dark. One out of the 16 rather fair, rather light, if you will. You would have appreciated four that were only medium dark and four medium light. But then six that would have fallen into the category of simply the medium color. Now with it, look at how those numbers compare somewhat interestingly to the features of those percentages we noted earlier. So again 55 percent of the planet Caucasian. 33 percent of the planet again that which was of the Mongoloid character and then we have the Negroid and finally the Australoid. May I offer the thought the percentages that one would appreciate could be easily obtained in but very few generations following the initial scene if Adam and Eve had been of those distributions I noted earlier. I would offer you that thought. Isn't that interesting that if God instilled in Adam and Eve the gene expression that was of maximum variability, it would have been easy to obtain the array of presentations of the human family all along the planet in but very few generations. And furthermore, if that were reinvested, In Noah's sons, it would be easy today because there were three boys to produce it, not just an initial set of parents. I would offer you the thought, as we've studied this tonight, we've learned somewhat about the origin and variety of peoples. And maybe as we draw our lesson to a conclusion, we're in position to have summarized the following. In the beginning, there was but one kind of the human family, and there's still but one kind. But oh, what variation is present in our appearances. But that variation is easy to see based upon some simple genetics connected to what originally might well have been the case concerning Adam and concerning Eve. And furthermore, concerning Noah's sons. Evolution isn't needed to explain this. In fact, one doesn't even need that much time to explain this. It could easily have happened in far fewer than the thousands of years that have now been available. One last thing about that slide. Isn't it still fascinating to contemplate and ponder that God has made of one blood all nations of mankind? Acts 17 verse 26. And as we close this lesson tonight, we have certainly reflected a bit on the origin of peoples, and some of what the book of Genesis has had to say about the distribution which is now possible, and some simple genetics, when put with it, have at least offered the thoughts we've considered tonight. It might be in this assembly this evening that someone, upon examination of your life, has found reason to realize there's a problem, an issue, and you need to come rushing to the side of the Master. The Lord Jesus Christ gave His life at Calvary so that every one of us could go to heaven. He leads it to our choice. He votes for us, and He wants us all to be saved, 2 Peter 3, verse 9. But of course, we are free moral agents and able to choose for ourselves. In this grouping tonight, if there's someone who maybe, though once a faithful Christian, is not as of tonight, won't you come back to your first love? The Lord Jesus Christ wants you so much to be faithful to His side. If we could be of some help to you tonight, won't you realize the need He has expressed for you to repent of those wrongs, those errors, those matters of sinful nature, make confession of them, and come rushing to the side of the Master. If we could help you in that way tonight, it would be our honor and privilege, and we'd love to do that while together we stand and while we sing.